Sam, what's up, man? Episode 13, baby. Yes, We're here. lucky number 13. That's right. We have uh, our third guest this week. If anybody here listening is a baseball fan, uh, you will without a doubt know who he is. That's Sam and I both raising our hands. He's one of my favorite people in all of ESPN. One of the favorite people I've ever worked with all time throughout my entire career. Incredibly nice guy. Uh, Tim Kirchin. Yes. Baseball, baseball legend. He's one of the most recognizable voices in both radio and television. He's a three-time author. We have a nice conversation about unwritten rules, where the Red Sox stand, what they need to do to improve steroids, and whether or not any of us on the planet that isn't a professional baseball player could get one hit and 100 pitches against Verlander. And spoiler alert, probably not. It's a great conversation. Thankful for him, his time coming on to be with us on our humble little podcast here, which on Instagram at at stats don't matter and on Twitter at stats podcast. Great conversation. Let's go. Yeah. We want to try and pin you down a little bit to get some of your baseball insight. I'm sure you are never tired of talking about it. Uh, what is the likelihood of the 2020 season? playing out completely well first off and sam you need to know this if it weren't for tim (laughs) oh yes tim appreciation (laughs) store let's go there would be no zoom broadcast there would be no (laughs) computer i can't even get to tell you how many times i called called tim and said tim I need help. Uh, Great. Five foot five. I'm a dope. I can't figure this out. Please help me. And he has helped me through so many different times. So that needs to be established before we go to any baseball. There would be no baseball in my life without Tim Cronin, who helped me get on my phone, my computer. And everything else. So well, sorry. I, I appreciate that. Thank I you. Appreciate that. The question in all my <laughs> what was the question about baseball? So what what's the likelihood of us playing a complete 2020 season? I'm sure that question has been beat into the ground, but just to hear it from you. All right. I am now at the 60-40 that we finish. Okay. Now believe it's fair. I had friends and people in the business at the beginning of the season who told me, I mean, before we even started, 50% chance we start, 20% chance we finish. I had others telling me 30% and 10%. So to be at 60-40 at this point, I believe is very encouraging, given I think where we were four and a half weeks ago. The players especially, have done a much better job of social distancing. They have been very cautious. The games I did early from the booth, which actually isn't the booth, it's my office where I'm sitting right now. (laughs) Uh, I watched and said, where is the social distancing? They're sitting right next to each other on the bench. They're hugging, they're high-fiving, which is all okay. It's reflexive, a teammate hits a homer. What are you gonna do, stand eight feet away from him and say, way to go, dude, it doesn't work that way. And yet, lately, lately, I can tell they've done a much better job because I think everyone acknowledges we have to do a much better job on every level here if we're going to finish the season. 
So I've developed some hope that we are, and let's not forget the most important thing. First off, October baseball is fabulous. And mm-hmm. there is so much money to be made in October. So Major League Baseball is going to do whatever it takes to finish this season, including the World Series. And again, 60-40 might even be ambitious at this point, but I think now we're going to get there, but I'm certainly not sure of anything. Now, I guess that'll lead me into my next one. Do you feel like this season should count as a normal season or should it have sort of an asterisk along with it? Well, this is by definition the most abnormal season of all time. This is the strangest, weirdest, most bizarre season, and there's never, there's no close second to what Mm -hmm. we're going through here with number of games played, COVID, everything else, and it's nobody's fault. This disease has beaten everybody so far, including baseball, and good for all these sports for trying to fight their way through it and keep people healthy. But yes, there's going to be an imaginary, at least, asterisk next to this season for the rest of time. But let's just say, let's just say the Dodgers, who came Mm -hmm. in the season as the odds-on favorite as the best team in the National League. Let's say they go 45 and 15. And let's Mm -hmm. say they just blast through October and crush everyone on the way to winning the World Series for the first time since 1988. And then we're going to tell them, all right, we're not really counting that. That really doesn't count. (laughs) And it's so unfair. And yet, on the flip side of that, sorry, whoever I offend here, if somebody hits 400 this year, which, by the way, is not going to happen, (laughs) I'm going to tip my cap. I'm going to bow to that person. But the last guy to hit 400 was Ted Williams in 1941. You just can't compare 60 games to 162 or 154. So we have to be careful with the individual awards. But if we're going to play a baseball season, almost by definition, we have to have a champion. So I'm recognizing whoever comes out at the end of October as the winner. If we don't finish October, then we'll have to have another discussion. It's kind of wild to think about the fact that like we're almost in September, right? You know what I mean? Like we would have been so used to like long stretches of baseball. The all-star break would happen. We would have been rejuvenated. We would have come back in and we would have said, all right, cool. We have this last push and we just didn't have baseball for months at a time. So now we're like, all right, we have baseball and there's been a couple outbreaks and we've been trying to deal with everything that's going on. Like as, as you said, Tim, and here we are almost in September and we're talking about, you know, playing the rest of these games and then getting playoff baseball and like making a run for the series. And it's like, it's kind of surreal. You know, I mean, Tim and I, we thought, you know, in the beginning, like there's, there's no way this thing plays out mm-hmm. just the way it was going. And there have been small, hard fought gains. I think you could, you could say that. So I, I really hope it goes the distance. Um, I'm also going to say 60, 40. Uh, if you go back <laughs> and listen to a couple of pods uh, earlier, Tim was 90, 10 in it not happening. So very true. Yeah. I, um, for for me, right. I think you're right. It's so weird. You develop a rhythm from the season. I mean, baseball yeah. is is not so much a game as it is a habit. 
It happens every single day and you start to build as the season goes along and you build that rhythm to the season. And I look up routinely now and go, oh, my gosh, it's August the 26th. What are we doing here? You know, we just finished the 32nd game of the season. That's that's very hard to digest for me. But this is the point of this season. We all have to be flexible, adaptable. And understanding that things are going to change. Because let's face it, guys, we are making stuff up on the fly here. We went yeah. seven inning doubleheaders after the season started. <laughs> after the season started, we changed the number of teams that would be eligible for the playoffs. That could never yeah. happen any other time except for a bizarre season like this. Yeah, and I mean, so I'm I'm a Sox fan, and one of the thing, one of the shining moments of every season for me is the All Star break, because the way the Red Sox usually play, they either come out firing all the way up to the All Star break, and then they start petering off a little bit and come back to reality, or the opposite happens, where we come out stumbling, we get to the All Star break, we make a couple acquisitions, some some moves, and we start to improve. We get neither of those two this season, and I actually went on record last week and said that I thought the Red Sox were in the bottom half of the league, if not one of the currently one of the worst teams in baseball, at least on paper. Uh, on a scale of one to the Baltimore Orioles, where do you put the Red Sox? <laughs> well, right now the Red Sox are below the Orioles. So yeah, I, know, I don't think you thought that went through, Tim. <laughs> All right, the, the Red Sox. Oh, I that, sorry, I meant Baltimore. One in. Opposite order, Baltimore <laughs> Orioles being the bottom of the list. But yeah, yeah, you get it. <laughs> the Red Sox have a very competitive everyday lineup. Their pitching is terrible. We all know yes. they are rebuilding their pitching staff on the fly here. Also, they have no immediate help in the minor league. Right. They just traded two relievers, as they should have, to the yeah. Phillies in order to start to rebuild that pitching staff. It's not it's going to take some time. And granted, Chris Sale, Eduardo Rodriguez get hurt. You trade David Price. Those are your three top starters, right? You're not going to be a good – you're not going to pitch well when you lose your top three. But I, I did a game this year where Josh Osich made his first major league start after, what, 213 relief appearances. And Matt Hall started the next day. Sorry, yep. those guys are major league pitchers. They just should not be starting back-to-back -back games at Fenway Park for the Boston Red Sox. This is right. different. This is not the Rays. This is not some rebuilding team that's been around for 30 years. These are the Red Sox. There is a certain standard that must be met there, and that's why it is so pronounced how poorly things are going because it's the Red Sox. So it's going to take a little while there. They're going to score some runs, but they're going to give up a ton, which we've seen. They gave up eight or more runs in six consecutive games this year. No Red Sox team had ever done that in the history of the franchise. That's just one of several pitching notes that just make you shake your head. Yeah, yeah. I, I can remember a couple of seasons ago when they were in the series, right? Remember – they had that long, like, 17, 18 inning game, and, like, they took out the whole lineup. Everyone pitched. And the next day, everyone's like, well, what are you going to do tomorrow? And Core at the time was like, oh, Eovaldi's going to pitch. Oh, Sale's going to pitch. Oh, everyone's going to pitch. And they, they went out, and I was like, you just ran your, your pitchers through, like, a gamut. And then the next day, they came out, and they, they were just firing. And, like, 
we don't have that depth anymore in Boston. So like, yeah. like you said, Tim, there, there is an expectation. There's a standard that's set there. And unfortunately right now, the Red Sox, and I kind of like how their, their Twitter avatar is just the two socks that are split apart that look like L's <laughs> because they, <laughs> they're, in their own, they're in on their own joke. They know that this is, is going to be a tough season for them. And, um, you know, all things considered, I mean, they have a lot of things that they'll probably have to you know, pay attention to for the future you know, as to rebuild the team. But when you're a perennial powerhouse, you have generational talent, you know, in baseball and you let a guy like, you know, Mookie, whether it was contract or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like Tim and I were saying in the last pod, like every time he's on TV, we're very, very happy for him, but we die just a little bit inside. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> if there's anything the Red Sox could have done to keep them, like maybe the season wouldn't go the way it's going, but who knows? Yeah. And I'm sure it didn't help that Mookie had another three homer game the other night. So just digest this for a minute. He has six, three homer games. He's like 28 years old. So Hank Aaron had one. Babe Ruth had two in the regular season. Rafael Palmero, David Ortiz, and Gary Sheffield, all 500 home run hitters had zero combined. So, So Betts has twice as many as Ruth, Aaron, Sheffield, and Palmero have combined. That's how amazing he's been. But way beyond that, he's brought an element that the Dodgers needed, an, a leadoff guy who could run and hit the ball out of the ballpark, another brilliant defensive player. And this might be the best Dodger team since we've seen since 1955. Mookie was the last piece. And not only do they get him, trade for him, but they signed him long term. And I, yeah. I mean this in the most Southern gentleman way possible. Bless the Dodgers' heart. Because they found they found a nice home for him where they can use him, and I'm just cringing underneath all of this because it's just like you wonder what that sort of production could do on any team, let alone a team that's stacked like the Dodgers. Uh, all things. Yeah. I mean, historic. I mean, at least for the last ten years, it seems like every couple of years the pitching for the Red Sox becomes their biggest question mark. You had a couple of years there in the middle where everything was fine, but it seems like every single year it, it's either the back of the starting rotation or our bullpen. It just seems to be a struggle and I can't quite put my finger on why the Red Sox can't seem to figure that out. I think Price, when he was doing well, he did well, but I don't think he was ever a great fit in Boston. I wasn't as heartbroken to see him go. I know Chris Sale had some inconsistencies, but I thought he was going to be great. I know Eduardo Rodriguez, you know, hope he gets better soon. I think he was sort of on the rise, but he didn't, I never had a ton of confidence in him either. So I think had we had those two guys in the rotation, I think we obviously would have been better off than what we are now, but I don't know if it would have made that much of a difference, at least, at least for now. Right. And uh, David Price did what he had to do. They won the world series in part, in large part because of him in 2018. So he did his job, but in the end it was time for him to go they got something in return. We'll see where this goes from here for David Price. But I repeat, this is a rebuild of a pitching yeah. staff, and you can't do that overnight. Right. Man. Um, Tim, you're a very accomplished uh, writer, obviously. You know, you've written for, uh, what, the Dallas uh, Morning Star and then a couple newspapers in Baltimore. You also did a little bit with Sports Illustrated, and of course, all the work you do for ESPN. So is, is there a piece of writing, baseball or not, that is like a piece that you, that you wished after you wrote it, that you maybe sat on a little bit to let a couple more ideas develop or 
like, you know, as the rise of breaking news in sports has like made it. So everyone wants to get their piece out there and it needs to be 60 to 70% correct. And they, they want, you know, flashy terms in it. So it gets clicks and, and gets views. Like, is there any piece that you've written that you're like, man, after you submitted it, you said, I think if I had gone back and, and percolated on a little bit, it would have been a much better piece. Well, I have a few of those. Um, on a different level, I wrote a story about Kevin Apier of the Royals in the mid-90s. And I went to see him three different times. He's a fascinating guy. He's a really good pitcher in his prime. And that story never ran. I went to see him three times. I really worked on that. But because he got lit up a couple times when the story was supposed to run, we held it, and then it never ran again. And I can't even begin to tell you how frustrating that is. It's like taking BP for three weeks and not getting to play the game. And that's what happened to me. So that really hurt on a completely different level. I wish I'd been better on the steroid story. We all miss the steroid story. But in defense, in my defense, and the defense of everyone else, you it wasn't an obvious story that look at these guys, they're all so big, they're all on steroids. To do that story, you have to go undercover. The two guys, Steve, uh, Mark Fanner, Wada, and, and the Williams fellow, they broke that story because they went undercover. They didn't cover the game like we were doing. You can't do right. both of those. You're either an investigative reporter, or you're a features guy, or you're a beat guy. And those guys were great investigative reporters. So do I wish I would have had a better look at the steroid era? Yes. Did I have my suspicions? Yes. But was it obvious to me balls are flying out of the park because all these guys are doing steroids? It was not that obvious to me. And it wasn't that obvious to everyone else. So I'll take the blame. We should all take the blame. But looking back, I, I could have done a much better job there. And I think my journalistic brethren could have done the same also. Now, with sort of, because I remember everything was just all baseball all the time. The attention was constantly on the sport. You had the race between McGuire and Sosa. Where do you lie on the actual impact of steroids in the game? And do you think there was a benefit from it? Or do you think it's something that needs to be just no tolerance, just completely sever all ties with anybody who had any sort of link to that? Well, that's about a two-hour discussion, Tim. <laughs> Much like my computer issues with you are a two-hour discussion. All right. In the end, nothing good came out of the steroid era, except for a bunch of guys put up some ridiculous numbers, and they got a lot of money for doing it. So I guess yep. that's a good thing. But there's no nothing good that came out of that. And when I look back at it, I acknowledge that it happened, but I'm not about to tell you that McGuire and Sosa should be wiped from the record books. And what I saw that incredible weekend in St. Louis didn't really happen. Well, I was there. I wrote that for ESPN, the magazine, and that happened. And I still feel it inside of me. So don't right. tell me it didn't happen. Now, what right. is there an asterisk attached to it? Of course. What are we supposed to do with this? That's the two-hour discussion. I vote for Bonds and Clemens 
every year for the Hall of Fame. And I'm not proud on any level for doing that. However, when I look at the alternative, one guy's the greatest hitter I've ever seen. And after Babe Ruth and Ted Williams, I think he's the greatest hitter of all time. Roger Clemens won seven Cy Youngs. No one else has won five. He is one of the great pitchers of all time. And I'm not about to tell everyone that what those guys did was fraudulent. And I'm not proud for voting for them, but I vote for them anyway. It just seems to me that there was this tacit agreement going on in Major League Baseball back then. A lot of people are doing this. Nobody's checking on this. It's not technically illegal, even though it was. No one's going to get caught from this. I think a lot of people with a competitive bone in their body would have considered doing that. I'm not saying it was right. I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying what athletes have been doing since the Greek Olympics thousands of years ago. So I vote for Bonds and Clemens. I don't think they're getting in on the writer's ballot. I don't know if they're getting in on the old timers ballot, but it's a very tricky issue. And the baseball writers have been, have been handed this issue. They tossed it in our laps and said, all right, you guys figure this out. Well, I can tell you as a baseball writer, we're not good enough to figure that out. It's too corny of an issue. We need to have another nationwide discussion between the hall, former players, current writers, voters. What do we do with these guys? Because there is still no simple answer to this question. Like I can see with Clemens, the argument that, Steroids obviously made you a stronger, better pitcher. You still got to make the pitches. You still have to throw the ball the right way. With batters like Bonds and McGuire, sure, if you make solid contact with the ball, is it going to go a little further? Yeah, but you are taking something that should almost be physically impossible in hitting a baseball. The skill has to be there at a high level in order to have the level of contact that those guys did on a regular basis. So. And Mark McGuire, 49 homers as a rookie. So don't tell yeah. me that yeah. his 70 homer season is when he discovered that he had power. When he was right. as skinny as a rail, he had 49 homers. Barry Bonds is one of the greatest players I've ever seen before the whole steroid era. But that brings up an interesting point. I've heard a lot of people say, well, Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer before he did steroids. And my friend Dan Shaughnessy from the Boston Globe said, wait a minute, if you shoot 32 on the front nine and you cheat on the back nine, you get disqualified <laughs> for the entire round. Yep, It's hard That's... to argue that point. But I think yeah. the point is baseball is not golf. They call strokes penalties on themselves in golf. Baseball <laughs> is an old expression. It's terrible. But if you're not yeah. cheating, you're not trying. So yeah. I, I like that. I hate that. But that's the way the game has been played for 150 years. And it's a little naive to think that guys aren't trying to find an edge, even if it means doing something a little untoward. I mean, yes. you, you still have it. You see guys like Braun who got busted and denied it and denied it and did all the same thing and eventually was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is fine. Let's move on. So, like, yeah. it's it's still there, just not as prevalent. Yeah, I think one of the, the things that probably – is so fascinating about that era of baseball. And and Tim and I have talked about this on one of the earlier podcasts as well, because there was a great run of those 30 for 30 docs this summer. Um, and long gone summer was a fantastic 30 for 30. Um, you just sort of get enveloped in the fact that everyone in America was a baseball fan at that time. 
And like, just like you said, Tim, even if there was some questions, if there was some hint or a rumor, no one really had enough knowledge at the time to sort of run it down. It was the same thing. We were watching Lance Armstrong win seven tour de France's. We, we all said, I think there might be something up here, but I am definitely not a scientist and I am not going down this rabbit hole. Uh, and that just kind of brings up something that we've, we'd like to talk about. And it's come right back into, I think, play recently. Um, like if steroids were sort of like a known thing, then what about like unwritten rules? Because there's been a lot of hubbub about unwritten rules lately in the game, um, just with Slam Diego and, you, you, you know, like it just comes along. So like, Tim, what's your take? Unwritten rules, yay or nay? Well, I wrote a story for ESPN.com. Didn't tell you this, but I won an award for it on the unwritten rules in baseball. And again, this is about a three-hour discussion on the unwritten <laughs> Because there are so many of them, but we should just talk briefly about Fernando Tatis Jr. He, with what, eight run lead, swung at a 3 0 pitch in the eighth inning and hit a grand slam. And he got killed for it. And the unwritten rules tell you that's too late and that's too big of a lead to swing with a 3 0 count. Tori Hunter told me for my story six years ago, I said, What would happen if you swung 3 0 up? 10 to nothing in the eighth inning. And he said the next day, someone would get killed. That's how he explained. Now, I have no problem whatsoever with Fernando Tetis Jr. swinging a 3-0 count in the yes. eighth inning up that many runs. I just don't <laughs> think on the big league level that we should stop playing after seven innings. And I decide, agree. We can't rub it into the other team. That's really not fair. This is the big leagues. However, if I were the manager, I would have told him, I don't want you swinging 3-0 here. You know why? Because the next day or the next hitter, somebody's going to throw at you because there's an old school guy out there who feels like that is a no-no. And you might also incite the other team enough that they want to come out and kick your ass the next day more than today. So don't give them the opportunity. Mike Trout just hit his first home run this year ever on a 3-0 pitch. So I, I think Fernando Tatis does not need to apologize, but he does as a 21-year-old have to learn that it might be more harm than good to do that because it might get somebody on your team hurt. And that's not worth it. And until we wipe out this whole archaic look at the unwritten rules by our, some of our veteran players, somebody's going to get hurt. And it, I repeat, it's not worth it. Right. I think, I, I mean, I would even take it a step further and say, like, I, so I grew up a, a ball player pretty much all the way through high school. I started when I, I lived in California and we played year round. Um, and at no point was I ever a supporter of like throwing the ball at another player because most pitchers have a general idea of where that ball is going to go, but there's usually like a six to 12 inch variance whenever they let that thing go. And I feel like there's always the risk every time they throw at somebody, unless they're pegging them in the leg that it's going to go south. So I think there should be a movement just to get rid of it all together. If you got a problem with somebody, find another way to deal, deal with it because you're not going to go up and take an at bat right after you plug someone. It's someone on your team that's then going to have to take repercussions for whatever your behavior was. And you're probably upset because of a pitch you missed to begin with. So you're asking someone else to take all the responsibility for 
what you're doing. Instead of taking ownership and saying, yeah, I messed up. I threw a bad pitch. I let that one go. Whatever. You being a guy, you're not going to get beaten back, especially as everyone's moving away, uh, moving towards the DH across the entire league. You're putting someone else at risk now to take the, the repercussions <laughs> for you. and Or you're asking for guys to step up and crush 3-0 home runs because nobody respects you because they know you're going to just plunk somebody whenever you're in a bad mood. That's why that 58-mile-an-hour pitch the other night that the Astros pitcher threw, was it Grinky? That was, yeah. that was a thing of beauty. He put so much effort into wind that thing up. And then like, you see, you saw the guy, he was like, nah, I'm not swinging at this. This is going to go outside. Then he was like, oh man, that that thing (laughs) just sank. It just dropped. And like, I think if you had seen that, you know, pre COVID in a stadium, people would have gone wild. They would have been like, I can't believe you didn't swing at that. You could have murdered that ball. But this is where we are now. Yeah, and you know, Joe Kelly got an eight-game suspension when he didn't hit anybody. But it's free Joe Kelly. He threw ninety-seven miles an hour up near another player's head, and that's unacceptable behavior. Look, I understand. Agreed. I understand what retribution or retaliation is all about. I really do. It's a hard game played by hard men, and I really admire that about our players. You disrespect a player, a teammate, or the game, or a team, you are going to pay for it. But there is a way to do that. And 95-7 at the head is not the way to do that. I've said it a million times. It is an extremely dangerous game. It's the most underrated part is the courage that it takes to play that game. Said it a thousand times. Average fan gets in a box at a major league game, sees one pitch, he's leaving and never coming back. <laughs> he's going right back to section twenty two. Comprehensible rate of speed. Yeah. And it's a very dangerous proposition. And that's why I'm one hundred percent against anybody throwing upstairs with anything that hard. Yeah, I mean I so I played lacrosse i played football uh I, I tried everything at least once and to this day the hardest hit to my head ever was in an all-star game i took a fastball to the temple hard enough it cracked the helmet and i remember being like unwell for a few days after that so right. I'm with you. i've never stood out on a, i would love to stand in just once on a even a change-up I wouldn't even I wouldn't even have to worry about a fastball, but I would love at some point just to. I, I hope with the increase in technology, there's a way to stand in on. I, I, ESPN's toyed around with it a little bit. Tim, next time you're on campus, I'll try and set you up with it. But you put on the virtual reality headset, and they give you a bat, and they have to give you a bat that's the weight of a like a wiffle ball bat or like a foam bat, and they actually let you stand in on real pitches coming in at real speed to take swings at it, and they come in so fast. They tried at first with real bats, and not a single person out of like 50 people who tried it made contact with it even once. But it would be a cool experience to stand in a, uh, a box once just, just to see and hear the sound of it because I'm a big sound guy when it comes to baseball. Oh, yeah. Ball in the mitt, ball off the bat, all that stuff. The whiz as it comes by I think would be great. Well, I find nothing cool about that. I find fully <laughs> terror about that. <laughs> again, I like the average fan understands that. and I'd like every average fan to stand even with third base. 
and let yeah. anybody, Vlad Guerrero Jr., whistle one past your ear and tell me yeah. how, many more game, how many more pitches you're going to stay at third base after seeing that because that's as dangerous as it gets also. I'm not saying I wouldn't be. Yeah, I'm not saying I wouldn't be terrified. There's a lot of tough guys in those in those in those comments, though. You know what I mean? Like you, you see some of these people be like, oh, whatever. Like you know, this season is such a joke. I could go out there and hit it and be like, okay, all right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on down, right, <laughs> take a COVID we'll, we'll, test. We'll just finish this discussion with this. <laughs> Any average person, and that includes both of you clowns, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I gave you a hundred at bats against Justin Verlander in his physical prime and at his competitive finest. Meaning, right. if if you get a hit, if you put a ball in play, if you make contact, you win. He loses. You are not making contact. Not you once. Are not putting the ball in play. And you are not getting a hit. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to buzz the tower. He's going to throw it right up next to your head. And you're going to be so afraid after that moment that you're going to say, okay, the competition is over. I am done. <laughs> and I'm going to look that. I'm going to look right at him. understand the danger and the, the how difficult it is to hit a pitch from a major league baseball player it's not happening i'm sorry it's a hard oh, oh no no don't, i'll argue this with anyone don't don't get me wrong i never once would even assume i could even make contact it would just be cool to stand there once and watch it go by but zero chance i'm making contact with that ball yeah I, you, you got it right i asked verlander this exact question with all the elements you know i was 58 at the time, 58 year old guy, 100 at bats. I didn't even finish the question. And he looked at me and he goes, Zero. I said, I haven't finished the question yet because I don't care. I know where you're going. The answer is zero. I continued yeah. to ask the question and he said, Zero is always the answer. <laughs> Unbelievable. It would look like a cartoon where I would see it coming. I would go to swing and it would hit the glove already, and then I would swing afterwards. Yeah, it would be that's, like delayed. That's exactly what it would look like. I would look like a man trying to get out of an imaginary straitjacket, trying to get <laughs> off the It's not happening. I, yeah, I, I, I tell you, I tell you what would happen. He would buzz a tower, and I would stare him down in my ah. head, in my head, and I would say, <laughs> "Tim says you shouldn't do that." Yeah. Throw that down the middle. I'm gonna crush this thing, and then I proceed to strike out 98 more times. But you know, it'd, it'd be totally worth it. All right, let's let's move on. This is great. Uh, so, are you a fan of cardboard fans in the stand? Uh, Sam, this year I'm a fan of whatever you want to do. All right, this is the weirdest, strangest, most bizarre season ever. So, give me cardboard cutouts. Give me digital fans. Give me fake crowd noise. I don't care. Let's just get the games played. Okay. Yeah. If you're asking me, do I think it's a great idea? No, I think it's a bad idea. I think I think fake crowd noise is a bad idea for any season except for this one. When again, we need all the help we can get to make this as entertaining as possible. So give me more of whatever you got. But this thought that, yeah, this is a great idea. We should do more of this. No. The stuff that we're experimenting this year, for the most, I hope, ends this year. And everyone acknowledges the only reason we're doing this is 
because of this strange, bizarre season. There are no fans right. in the stands. We're going to put cardboard cutouts at. Otherwise, uh, I'm done with that. Sorry. So I guess that's a good segue into a little bit more serious. So right now, excluding this year, what's your take on sort of the, the, the state of baseball as it stands and whether or not it's still America's pastime? Well, clearly it's not. And I say this with great pain because this is all I've done for the last 41 years of my life. And this is essentially all I've done in 63. This is all I've done for the last 60 years of my life. But clearly football is a bigger deal in this country than baseball. Clearly basketball is a bigger deal in this country than baseball. Our country today needs immediate gratification. They want action every second and baseball for too many people just doesn't move quickly enough i maintain it's still the greatest game it has a fabric a tradition to it that no other sport has the lack of a clock makes it so beautiful and most important lebron james doesn't touch it on every possession tom brady doesn't take the ball from center on every offensive possession. Our best player, Mike Trout, bats four times a game. And that's what makes it so good. Is the 25th guy on the team can win the game tonight. The 12th guy on an NBA team won't even be in the game at the end. And if he is in the game, there is 0% chance he's taking the last shot. Larry always took the last shot. Michael always took the last shot. Steph Curry takes the last shot now. It's a big difference. Mike Trout can't always do that. Clayton Kershaw can't pitch every game. I think that's a great thing, but I think that's one thing that baseball misses when it comes to marketing and star power is our best players, the best on the field that night, but LeBron James dominates every single game he plays. Even when he stinks, he is the whole of every game and he rarely stays. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit, Tim, just about how um, with like the demise of, you know, 40 teams in the minor league and then the kind of gaff, I guess that the A's had when they, they tried to recruit Kyler Murray. Uh, and you just take a look at all these things in a high level perspective and you wonder like what the future of the game is, you know, like American sports and baseball are so intertwined. They, they really do need each other. Um, I never really thought about like not, not having the clock until you brought that up. Like outside of the the clock, I, I, there are some times like, right. Where like, you can only go to the mound a certain amount of times. Right. So like there are some things meant to speed up the game, but the beauty about baseball is like, it's the experience and like you can go before the game starts and really when the game is over, you're still kind of hanging around. You're still talking about the game. So it's like this three to six hour experience, depending on how long the game is. Uh, we're just keeping you involved. And we just don't have that, like you said, in, in all these other sports, because it's just it's just instant gratification. Right. Just look at Kyler Murray for a second. If he had played baseball, which would not have been a bad idea, and he would have probably had a longer career in baseball, and eventually he would have played the big leagues. However, he would have played last year at Modesto. That's A ball. Instead, he started in the NFL. Yeah. Now, who in the world says, I'm going to go play a ball in front of 4,000 people every night, make virtually no money, and struggle terribly 
trying to learn how to play that ridiculously difficult game as opposed to starting in the NFL as a quarterback. And that's not to suggest it's easy to play in the NFL. That guy is freaking great. Let's not misunderstand that. But this is the difference is you're a, you're a star football player at Michigan. You're 6'2", you weigh 215, and you can run. You're playing in the NFL. You like yeah. to hit people. But if you're the best player on your high school or college team, there's no guarantee you can play in the big leagues. And if there is a guarantee, it usually isn't going to happen within the next two or three years. But football, basketball guys go straight to the NBA, straight to the NFL, because that game is so athletic, it's so physical, whereas baseball, there is so much skill involved, more skill, I believe, than the other sports. Right. Now, speaking of minor leagues, do you keep any of the bobbleheads? Do you get any of those for yourself? Um. No, I'm not a collector by <laughs> any means. My son has a few bobbleheads. He got a bobblehead. You guys don't even know this guy. Stubby Clap, who was a minor league manager a couple of years ago. Somehow Stubby Clap's uh, bobblehead was sent to me, and that sits in my son's room still, even though he's 27 years old. But no, I don't, I don't keep bobbleheads. I, I don't collect anything. I don't have any autographs. I don't, I, all my, everything I have is up in my head. That's, that's all I've got. And I really don't need anything else, even though I have two bobbleheads of me, which is remarkable. Oh, that's what I meant. Do you keep any of your own? Did, like, oh, I know yeah, they did a minor have, league release of your bobblehead. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you, I have, do you keep some? Two of those, but again, my bobbleheads are actual size, so that's what makes them unique. <laughs> actually, so I looked them up earlier today, and you'd be surprised that they actually go for some like collector value. So on eBay, your bobblehead starts at like fifty bucks and climbs up to a couple hundred dollars for that bobblehead. <laughs> I'm looking at both of them in my office right now. First off, one of them doesn't look anything like. <laughs> Other one makes me look like Richard Nixon. And seriously, do we have to have the gray hair on the bobblehead? I know <laughs> it was actual. I know that's what I look like. We could have given a little bit more dark hair. It's just an absurd possibility that I even have a bobblehead, especially one that doesn't even look like me. Well, we don't have bobbleheads yet, but we need we need to get some. That's for sure. That's right. Um, Tim, here, here's a question. This This is from a friend. Uh, he's a big Giants fan. When are the San Francisco Giants going to become relevant again? How old is your friend? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know where you're going with this, but I love it already. Now he's All like right. my age. He's like 33. It's going to take some time, okay? They're, yeah. they're, they're in a rebuild. Their two best players are Mike Stremski, who's been great. He's 30. And Donovan Solano, he's 31. Those are their two best players. They have the second oldest team in the major leagues to the nationals and they're trying to do a rebuild. So they're going to rebuild that team. They played a whole lot better this year than I thought they would. They've won six games in a row. I'm doing their game tomorrow night against the Dodgers. I'm very excited about it, uh, but it's going to take some time. And let's not forget they're in the Dodgers division. So they're not winning that division anytime soon, but Farhan Zaidi is the GM. He's brilliant. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's going to rebuild this team in a methodical way, much like the team did in Chicago. So Giant fans should be patient, but they should know 
that the club president, Farhan, knows exactly what he's doing. All right. We'll let you go in just a sec. One very pressing question, at least. I know you're all caught up on Columbo. You're already caught up on Get Smart. What is Tim Kirchin watching when he's not watching baseball right now? Well, I'm only watching baseball now. Thank goodness, because I went four months without baseball. So uh, I watched The Office. I binge watched The Office for the first time. Now, look, I know I'm the last guy to get around to that. But that Michael Scott is the single stupidest character. <laughs> and he is hysterically funny. But he, he, at the beginning, I couldn't really engage. By the end, that show really grew on me. And by the way, I saw on Twitter once, I should never share this, but somebody wrote on Twitter that Tim Kirchin looks like what Steve Carell is going to look like when he gets really, really old. <laughs> so I looked it up. I looked it up. I am three years older than Steve Carell. But Steve Carell is going to look like me when he is really, really old. What does that, that mean? Is, oh, that is my goodness. So you got that I watched wow. six years of The Office. It was hilarious, but it was uh, maddening because he was so frustrating because he always, always says and does the wrong thing at the wrong time. So. That, well, that show could never air on television. First of all, the first season of that show was tough to get through, I think, for everybody. Second season, it hits its stride. But that show, much like Friends, could never air on television right now with some of the jokes that they make, some of the topics that they talk about. But for what it is and for the time, it's phenomenal. I, I was not a big Friends fan my whole life, and my wife was obsessed with it. Uh, when we got married, we started watching it. I would say put that one on your list at some point. That one's worth a watch too. It's uh, yeah. Joey is maybe the second dumbest person on television behind Michael Scott, but not by far. Uh, he is he is very very funny. He's just this dopey Hollywood actor who plays his part on or struggling actor who plays his part. It's and it, it's, it's very it's hard for me to see anything with Matt LeBlanc, who is who's the guy who plays Joey Tribbiani and Friends, as serious now. Like he's typecast himself forever in that role. Um, I do got to say though, if you know Steve Carell. If people say Steve Carell and you kind of look alike, then you got to get a Steve Carell bobblehead and then put it in the middle. And then when people look at your lineup, they're not going to know who's who, right? So that could work. And I bet <laughs> if you gave Steve Carell 99 at-bats against Verlander, he's hitting one of them. He's got it. He's got it, Tim. Come on. Did you watch him play basketball in the basketball? Yeah. <laughs> I know he was joking around trying to be that terrible, but uh, no. Zero, zero contact for Steve Carell. Zero contact for the three of us also. Also, so <laughs> I hear that here's, I'm right for once. Here's, here's what you should do at some point. Uh, I haven't told Adam Schefter we're going to do this, but Adam Schefter was on our podcast. He was our first guest. And um, he was very much in like COVID mode. He was outside by the pool with his family. He came in. Uh, we got a picture of him, and I have to send it to you because I sent it to a couple friends of mine saying, hey, check out our first guest. And of the six people who got it, six people asked me if it was Paul Rudd. So now I'm going to see if somehow I could work Paul Rudd into being on this as a fake Adam Schefter. 
you, and I know the Dan Levitard show could probably put some some movement behind this, should see if Steve Carell will pop on as a fake oh, Tim oh. Kirchin. <laughs> one person on Twitter says, listen to anyone on Twitter, and to repeat, I don't look like him. I look like what he looks like, and he's really, really old, like 90. I'm 63. <laughs> We'll get some makeup people involved. It'll be oh man! Oh my goodness! Wow, this uh, is this has been well, great, Tim. I want to thank you for your time. We've kept you too long already, but thank you very much again. You are one of my favorite people in all of ESPN. Anybody I've ever worked with, I think you're great. Final question: You have four books. All of them are great. Which is the one you would recommend the most if people want to get to know you? Uh. Well, I think the last one, I'm fascinated by Sacrifice Flies, is my favorite one, maybe because it's the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second one is this great game or what? I really enjoyed that. Um, I love, I, it's the most satisfying thing I've ever done is writing a book. It's easy to watch mm-hmm. TV, but it takes a great commitment to go out and buy a book, sit down and read it. So whenever anyone says, hey, I read your book, I, I really liked it. So after my second book, my uh, nephew, Brett, had to do, had to do a, a report in the fifth grade comparing and contrasting two pieces of literature in history. So my second book, Is This a Great Game or What?, is just a collection of stupid, funny, you know, wild stories, no heavy lifting, no serious stuff. It's just a Valentine for baseball fans. So my nephew, Brett, picked the two pieces of literature was this game or what? And the Odyssey by Homer. <laughs> so my, my cousin, Julie, his mother had to tell him, Brett, look, I get it. There are Homers in both of them, but I don't think... These two are comparable. You better find two other literature. But uh, I got a kick out of that. And one That's awesome. book that I wrote about, you know, dorky players doing funny things. The other was written at the time of the Trojan horse. That is a long time ago. That is amazing. That is amazing. Well, again, on behalf of the Stats on Matter podcast, Sam and I, we really, really appreciate appreciate yes, your time. So thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. Um, I have a computer problem. I'll call you in the morning. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. We'll talk then. All right. Take care, fellas. Have a good one, Sam. Thank sir. you, sir. See you, Sam. Thanks. Big thanks to Kirchin for being on. We also want to thank everybody who's listened so far. We appreciate everyone's time. We appreciate your feedback. And we encourage you to find us if this is your first time anywhere where you might actually listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify. I spoke to my Alexa today just to test it out. And sure enough, we show up there. You can literally find us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at Stats Podcast or on Instagram at Stats Don't Matter. We want to hear from you guys. Tell us what you want to hear. We know we're lacking a little bit on some of the hockey coverage. And as a hockey fan, that, that that hurts my feelings. And that's me dropping the ball. But we still appreciate you guys. Tell us what you want. We're here for you. Stats for the people. Podcast for the people. That's, yeah, stats will matter. Podcast. Yeah.